Listen, if you're still living with bladder accidents, stop. It's time to get your life back. I was just like you until I found real relief with Axonix therapy. It's not a pill or a pad. It's a clinically proven advanced treatment. Get started at findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com. Consult a bladder specialist to find out if Axonix is right for you. Results and experiences may vary. For more information about safety and potential risks, go to findrealrelief.com. Hello, I am Gerard Farrelly and this is Fascinated. It's episode 40 and honestly, I hadn't thought of doing something special for the 40th episode because, you know, this podcast has been going for about six years and it's only 40 episodes in. So it's not a great achievement really when you think about it in those terms. But then two weeks ago, things all changed and this happened. This is a live interview between me and my favourite actress of all time. No ifs, no buts, and if you know me, you will know that to be 100% true. It's really strange the way it all happened, but I'm so delighted that it did, and I am also delighted that I was able to get it recorded and I can release it as a podcast. Special thanks to Galway Film Fla for allowing all that to happen. Also, thank you to my followers on Instagram that uh, gave me Thai suggestions in the dressing room beforehand when I was having a moment. <laughs> uh, I couldn't pick a tie. And in the end, I didn't take anyone's suggestion and I just didn't wear one. Um, I'm not sure if that was a good idea or a bad idea, but uh, but thank you. Thank you for being there. This podcast is a regular, so if you like this show, please make sure that you do subscribe wherever you downloaded this and then you won't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, please do tell someone about it that otherwise wouldn't get to hear it. You can also give me the gold star treatment by giving it a mention on social media. If you use iTunes, please do rate and leave a lovely review because that helps other people find us, apparently. I don't know if that's true, but anyway, (laughs) they're always lovely to read. (laughs) Uh, This is a really special episode. Uh, It was for me anyway, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, you are very welcome to the 40th episode of Fascinated. I never thought I'd get to say this sentence, but my guest today is Tyne Daly. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! In the UK and Ireland, Tyne is still revered for her portrayal of Detective Mary Beth Lacey of the 14th Precinct from the hit series Cagney and Lacey. If you want to hear more about the genesis of Cagney and Lacey, have a listen to episode three where I spoke to its creator, Barney Rosenzweig. There's nothing I'd rather talk about, you know, than uh, than, uh, that show. And and, and I always used to say I'd rather talk about it than make it. (laughs) (laughs) I first heard of Cagney and Lacey on a Friday evening in my Granny Farrelly's house. We were watching an episode of Telly Addicts and they showed a clip and I was very young, but I remember thinking, what is this? My mother was adamant that I was too young to watch it, so it wasn't until my early 20s that I saw some repeats and became absolutely spellbound. Cagney and Lacey wasn't a show about two cops that happened to be women, it was a show about two women who happened to be cops. What made it unique was the two women's lives were the centre of all of the stories. The police backdrop made the show exciting and got it on television. You call these plain clothes? But it was the characters of Christine Cagney and Mary Beth Lacey, coupled with the phenomenal performances of Tyne Daly and Sharon Gless, that made the show absolutely compelling. It's the first time in network television that an hour of drama was turned over to stories about women. It was also the first time that we went home with the heroes. (laughs) 
Christine Cagney would play pool with her father or go on dates, and in the Lacey's, Mary Beth and Harve would make spaghetti sauce and talk about their dreams while washing the dishes. The writers spun great stuff from gender role reversal in the Lacey household, and time took it to the stratosphere. Harvey would feed the kids and get them to school, but when drug dealers moved into the neighbourhood, it was Mary Beth who knocked on the door. It was a delicate balance which would have failed in the hands of a less skilled company. When the Lacey's came home from the school play to find that their home had been burgled, it was Mary Beth who calmly sends the kids to the neighbours and pulls out her gun and checks the burglars are gone. In contrast, Harvey frantically runs through the house. Mary Beth's resolve is only shaken when, in a rage, Harvey runs through the hall and she almost shoots him. She then sits down on the stairs and bursts into tears. If you were a casual viewer, you got great entertainment, but if you were in any way looking for golden nuggets of character narrative, you were richly rewarded. The producer's mantra for Cagney and Lacey was provided by Tyne Daly's mother. Deeper, richer, fuller, better. The show was cancelled twice, and the network reversed the decision twice. The first time it was revived on the condition that then Cagney, Meg Foster, was recast. The second revival was prompted by a letter-writing campaign and the nomination of Sharon and Tyne for the Best Actress Emmy. And the winner is... Tyne Daly for Cagney and Lacey. Tyne took the award and they both got their series back. During the run of the show, both Sharon and Tyne were nominated for the Best Actress Emmy every season and each year it was won by one of them. Tyne winning the first three, Sharon winning two and then another for Tyne. The three in a row for Tyne was great for her and great for the show, but the press scrutinised both actresses searching for rivalry, as three wins for Tyne was three losses for Sharon. Sharon eventually had her own three in a row with a Golden Globe and two Emmys and opened her first Emmy speech like this. First, thank you to my very generous partner and friend, Miss Tyne Daly-Brown, who I am sure is the most relieved woman sitting in this room tonight. They were lauded and respected and at the top of their industry. We were the highest paid women in television in our day. Of course, our joke is we never thought to ask what the highest paid man was making. Even when you know you're gonna lose, it ain't tax exempt, it ain't even dues, ain't that While Cagney and Lacey brought Sharon Glass and Tyne Daly into our living rooms, it remains a short but significant period in their long acting careers. In explaining her route to acting, Tyne always says she went into the family business. Starring tonight, James Daly as Michael Powers. Her mother was stage actress Hope Newell and her father was James Daly, best known for foreign intrigue. Tyne was on stage from a young age and made her Broadway debut in 1967 in That Summer, That Fall, which lasted just 10 nights. San Francisco sprawling, picturesque. She came to attention when she starred opposite Clint Eastwood in the Dirty Harry movie, The Enforcer. She played the role of Kate Moore, which was a role that she had helped create. To put down that weapon, and then on the deck and spread your legs. Are you kidding me? Afterwards, she got the Cagney and Lacey movie of the week, opposite Loretta Swit, who first played Cagney. Then, after seven years, three Cagneys and three theme tunes, Cagney and Lacey turned in their badges and guns in 1988. They reunited in the mid-90s to make four reunion movies and delighted their fans by guesting on each other's shows numerous times. Oh, it's hard to be 
During the final season of Cagney and Lacey, Tyne guested on Dolly Parton's variety show where she sang a duet with Dolly and it caught the attention of the team producing the 30th anniversary of the musical Gypsy and she jumped on board and won a Tony Award for her iconic performance. People sit on their butts Got the dream, yeah, but not the guts That's living for some People for some Hum, drum People, I suppose in an interview with The Advocate, Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book and directed the show, said, I think she does Rose's turn better than anyone ever has. It's gritty, it's truthful, it's awkward, it's grotesque, it's embarrassing, and that's deliberate. And that's the way it always should have been. Tyne is an enormously gutsy actor. For me! For me! After taking New York by storm and showing people she could sing, she appeared in concert versions of musicals like Anything Goes and On the Town. She even convinced Sharon Gless to join her in song at an AIDS benefit and they performed You're Nothing Without Me from City of Angels. The lyrics were rewritten by Tyne, parodying their Cagney and Lacey roles. We were a super double Yes, when you weren't a bitch I hate to break your bubble Those folks still don't know which one's which. That's my point, exactly. Your history without me has been with more ass than mine. You haven't a prayer, you're so unaware. Before tonight I felt just fine. Come on, kid, let's face it. Her work on television continued and she starred in the series Christy, for which she won another Emmy, and a string of independent movies and TV shows, including a guest spot on Columbo with her friend Peter Falk, where she proudly became the only woman Columbo ever kissed. That's 60 bucks you owe me, Cookie. Baby, you got it. Her stage work continued. She wowed in a revival of Call Me Madam, and then for a while she concentrated on appearing in new plays. She was once again Tony nominated for the Pulitzer Prize winning Rabbit Hole and for Terence McNally's Mothers and Sons, which was written for her. She went back to LA to play the classics, starring as Clytemnestra in the Greek tragedy Agamemnon at the Getty Villa. After the Greeks, she returned to Broadway, directed by David Hyde Pierce, for the new musical It Should Have Been You. He also tempted her to be his Lady Bracknell in a Prohibition-era transposition of the importance of being earnest. In 2012, Tyne made her West End debut in Masterclass, portraying Maria Callas, in a production which transferred from Washington to Broadway to London. UK fans were delighted at what was sort of a Cagney and Lacey reunion, as Sharon Gless was already on the strand in A Round-Heeled Woman. Never miss an opportunity to theatricalise. Am I saying the wrong thing? <laughs> Do something fiery. Well, I can't. Not just like that. <laughs> no one can. Where is my footstool? Well, I guess some people can. She returned to television in 2018 to play bar owner Phyllis in the revived sitcom Murphy Brown. It's about me too. You too? Me too. Me too. You too? Yeah. 
You don't need analyzing. It is not Time Daly is a force. She is honest and authentic in person, mesmerising in performance. The characters she plays seem to melt away when you meet her. Mary Beth Lacey's accent was an artifice. Maxine Gray's short temper and Phyllis's simplicity seem unreachable. She claimed to have survived the lean years as an actress by cutting her price and being willing to play older. On Judging Amy, she played 65 when she was 55. She let her hair go naturally grey for the role, which seemed to infuriate the press, who seemed to want her to cut it, or dye it, or just do something. Time did cut her hair, but as part of a dramatic storyline on Judging Amy where Maxine's fiancé dies. The storyline was hastily written to cover the untimely death of Tyne's friend and co-star Richard Cranach. And the Emmy goes to... Tyne Daly, judging Amy. The episode Requiem won Tyne her sixth Emmy. Tyne Daly has an Emmy nomination for every season of dramatic television she has worked, and she remains as busy as ever. In the past couple of years, as well as Murphy Brown, she has also appeared on Grey's Anatomy as Dr. Shepard's mother. In cinemas, she starred opposite Sally Field in Hello, My Name is Doris. You can see her in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix and also in the blockbuster Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, I can cook too, on top of the rest. My seafood's the best in the town. And I can cook too. As well as watching Tyne act, I love to listen to her being interviewed. But she always maintains that she prefers to do the job rather than talk about it. I've seen her on stage in Rabbit Hole in New York and Masterclass in London, and also an ill-fated production of Mother Courage in Dublin. When Tyne was starring in Rabbit Hole, I was doing a Masters in Theatre and writing a thesis on solo performance, and I tried to get an interview with her about her off-Broadway solo play, Mystery School. The press people from the Manhattan Theatre Club said she wasn't doing any interviews. A few weeks later, I was coming out of the box office of the Biltmore Theatre after buying a ticket to see her in a matinee, and I walked into her. We chatted, and I said I'd love to talk to her about Mystery School, and she said, what are you doing after the show? Come back and we'll talk. After the show, I went back, terrified, and I met her, and we went for a walk through New York. She told me all about the show, and we walked by billboards with her photo on them, emblazoned with the quote from Ben Brantley of the New York Times that said, whether on television or theatre, Miss Daly is one of the finest American actresses working. We chatted and walked to Walmart where she did her grocery shopping before going back to do the evening performance. Like I said, she's pretty cool. Tyne has three daughters from her marriage to George Stamford Brown. George is a well-respected actor and director. Tyne had starred opposite George, her then-husband, on his TV show The Rookies. There was a kiss between them in the script. The kiss became a problem because Tyne was white and George was black, and at the time of their marriage it was illegal in 17 states, which is astonishing. The network got around this by making Tyne's character blind. If my glasses bother you, I can take them off. I mean, they might be in the way in case you decide to kiss me. Tyne spoke about this in a speech at the curtain call of It Should Have Been You, the night the Supreme Court overturned legislation banning gay marriage. This is a tiny excerpt from the speech, but you can go and watch it if you just search on YouTube for Tyne Daly Curtain Speech. It's amazing. One of the lines I love in this play comes out of um, the mouth of Tan, and she says, well, we've talked it over, and we're very excited because we're all getting a family out of it. We are all getting a family out of it. This interview was recorded at the Galway Film Flat where she was promoting her new movies, The Bread Factory Parts 1 and 2, directed by Patrick Wang. 
When I heard they were screening Cagney and Lacey and interviewing Tyne, the first thing I did was buy front row tickets. The second thing I did was email my agent in a very rare moment of supreme confidence to tell them that nobody is more qualified for that job than me. I met Tyne half an hour beforehand in the foyer and we chatted and I practiced not allowing my brain to explode. She confessed beforehand that she doesn't really remember the Cagney and Lacey episodes as it was so long ago and had no idea about the episodes that they were screening. She had watched some of season one before doing some publicity for the DVD release. But Cagney and Lacey was a show that grew and grew. And by this season six two-parter, it was extraordinary. The two-parter screened was a season finale centering on the death of Cagney's father and her spiral into alcoholism. He just lay there. He couldn't move. But if he hadn't been drinking. If he hadn't been drinking. Chris, if he hadn't been drinking. He'd be alive. And I hate him for it. I hate him. I just hate him for it. It's not Christine, oh. I love you. And I don't want to lose you. I loved him too. Tyne and Sharon knocked it out of the park. And Sharon won the Emmy. Oh, we discussed that too. This is the interview and you're going to absolutely love her. I have one correction to make about a bizarre Cagney and Lacey fact. I'm not going to say any more. I'll do it after the clip because I don't want to ruin the surprise. This is Tyne Daily. Just to all these lovely private people who've come to see some 30-year-old work. <laughs> Who understands that? You're not in, you silly thing. If you get this message, call me back. Okay. <laughs> Hello. It's lovely to have you here, Tyne. Thank you very much. I wish I could have brought my, my, my partner, but, uh, you know, she's, she's busy doing something. You're, well, you've both been busy since yeah. the day you wrapped on Cagney and Lacey, really. We have, because uh, we didn't want to get stuck with those, uh, uh, you know, badges forever. Although we were very proud of it and all that stuff, but there was a whole lot more um, uh, life to do and work to do. And you, you've consistently done it. I mean, is, is it really strange to be at a film festival on the other side of the world promoting a new movie when you've done, like in the past two years you've done Hello My Name Is Doris, you've done Murphy Brown on television, Chasing Memories on, on, on the stage in LA, yeah. uh, and, and a bread factory, and we're all here on a Thursday afternoon <laughs> to talk about work that you did 30 years ago. Yeah, it's weird. Um, uh, <laughs> because I just, a couple of, couple of uh, months ago, I guess, there was a release of, of a Mr. Um, What's his name again? Dirty Harry? Clint uh, Eastwood. Eastwood, that's it. And, uh, you know, he got up and we were at the Academy and they were showing the first Dirty Harry, which I had never seen, even though I made a picture with him subsequently. And uh, he got up and said it, it was so curious to him that there were still people who were interested in 35-year-old work. Um, Cagney and Lacey is properly 30 years. We finished yes. in 89. Um, and then we uh, went our ways. But I've always been interested in being a long-distance runner, so... <laughs> so I've got this here, and then uh, this evening we'll be seeing some of the newest work, which is Bread Factory. Excellent. And uh, if you haven't seen Bread Factory, I've already watched part one. But have you, anyone seen part one? Yes. Um, it's 
absolutely fantastic. For anyone that has ever been in an Irish musical society, uh, you <laughs> need to go along and see this because this is it on the big screen. And part two is screening tonight. Yes, thank isn't you. It? Yes, yes, we'll go along. Um, you mentioned Clint Eastwood. You, uh, you, you turned him down, didn't you, when, he, when you were first offered The Enforcer? You yes. said no. Yeah, I said no over and over again. Because, and and uh, I'd just been doing a classic stuff on the stage in L.A., and I thought I was an accredited actor, you know, three sisters. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, no. And they said, do you want more money? And I said, uh, no. And they said, well, uh, what do you want? And I said, I want it to be a better part, you know. And then they, so they came back, and they said, well, uh, do, you, do, you, do you want more money? And I said, <laughs> I said, no, I don't want more money. And, uh, and they said, well... Would you like more money? <laughs> and I, you know, so I didn't realize that I was pretty young then that uh, the glamorous answer in the movies is no, because they can't stand it if they can't buy you, you know. So then they said, uh, the, the fourth or fifth time, they said, uh, Do you want to meet Clint? Like, would you like to meet God? And, and I said, Sure. And we sat down together and hacked it out and made some, you know, talked about uh, whether he wanted her to be a cartoon or a human being, which is what I wanted her to be. And he was a great boss, and it was really fun. And I got a lot more money. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but in the theater, of course, the answer is yes. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I can juggle. Yes, I can swim. Yes, I can horse ride. Anyway, you can supply. Yes, I will do it. Uh, in the movies, the glamorous answer is no. It's just a clue for you all. <laughs> and you, did, you said no a second time, because when you got the script for Cagney and Lacey, Oh, yeah. You read it. Well, I sort of dismissed it out of hand. I said, uh, no, thank you, my nice agent, but I've done my cop. It had been some years before that, that, that I'd done uh, whatever that was called, The Enforcer. And he said, read this. It's not what you think it is. It's not a repeat of, of uh, the police officer that you played before. And indeed it wasn't. And she had... The reason I wanted to play Mary Beth when almost every other actress in Hollywood wanted to play uh, uh, Cagney and indeed three of them did, um, uh, was because I thought there was room in Mary Beth. It was not just about being a police officer and run and gun, as we used to call it. Uh, uh, she had a family, and she had a husband, and she was trying to juggle all those things, and that's what women did in the 80s, and that's what women still do. Uh, <laughs> so aside from the clothes and the, and the, uh, uh, the telephone um, Differences. It, I'm, I'm hoping it holds up. I have to tell you quite honestly, um, when the festival said they were going to put this thing on, and they said we're going to show a two-parter <clears throat> called Turn, 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 and I said, <laughs> it's 30 years? I have no idea. He explained to me, he said to me, well, Mary Beth saves the baby. And I said, saves the baby? <laughs> it's, it's gone, folks. So, so I'm going to sit back there with my director from... Uh, 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 Bread Factory, and take a look at it, because um, I might, if it's too hard to look at, you may not see me at the end. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm delighted that you've all come, and uh, what well, else? What's interesting about this is that this is the one of the ones that actually Sharon uh, won the Emmy for this, for this episode. Um, oh, so thanks! So if you, if you want to storm out, I think... <laughs> Like you, you won four Emmys for the season, you come all the way across, and it's like, well, we won't give her the satisfaction. No, that's not absolutely not. That's, that's very Irish. Irish for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I had I'd, I'd taken or been honored with three of them uh, in our run, and uh, and when we got to that fourth season, um, and I was pregnant with my, I think I was pregnant with with Zanny. I got pregnant, hoping they'd fired me, but because I was getting tired. Any rate, um, my, my mother said, "Well, I think it's Sharon's turn." <laughs> I said, you're my mother. 
<laughs> no, but, we, we you, managed that, and we managed it only because we'd become very good friends and we weren't stupid. And you must have been very relieved when she did win. I was, yes. Yes. <laughs> the most relaxed Emmy party you'd been to in a few years. Yeah. Well, it could have been a source of, of, of conflict, and we just uh, didn't allow it. Because one of the other games, besides do you want more money, is to, is to divide and conquer in terms of actors, and especially women. In, in those days, the women dressed in those, you know, those dresses with the things and, uh, and you know, threw each other in the swimming pool and, and had mud fights. They, there was no interest in them being uh, useful to each other or friendly to each other or indeed relying on each other. And that's what we got to do, which was a privilege. And that, Cagney and Lacey changed television in that respect because these were, this was an expensive hour that was now being turned over to women mm -hmm. and, and to tell their stories. They were the subject rather than the object right. um, of television. Um, have you, since then, have you seen it reverse a little? Or have you, do, do you walk onto sets now and see, like pick up scripts and read the influences of Cagney and Lacey? Well, it's, it's always one step forward and two back. You know, there, was a, there wasn't any... It, uh, somebody, who was it? Somebody wonderful said, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of television. <laughs> and, um, um, so we were expecting to be copied. We didn't really get copied until Hoosie and Isles. What's that thing called? Oh, um... Yeah, but they're also, they're very glamorous. Yes. They're skinny and young and glamorous, and they never sweat. And their hair... <laughs> and their hair is, and I, had to, I had to beat the hairdressers back, saying, don't touch the hair. She hasn't looked at the back of her head in nine or ten years since the second baby. You know, so who's got time for that? And it was a, it was a real sort of, can't she tuck her shirt in? We'll give her a crotch piece so it'll stay nice and neat. She doesn't care about her bleeding shirt. She's, <laughs> she's trying to, you know, get home at night to Harvey. And it's, it, so, so it was... Um, it was fun, because it, it was a kind of a, um, uh, what's the word I want? Psychological b battleground. It was, uh, it, was, it was us and the network who wanted it to be something they'd seen before instead of something they hadn't. And fortunately, we were, we were out, uh, not in a studio. The studio was back in LA, and we were in Pasadena in a, bread, in a brick factory. Um, and so by the time they called and said, but that scene is, you'd say, Done. Sorry. <laughs> we had the sound people out there. We had a little studio of our own. And were you aware of the pressure at the time? Because this was because it was so new, and the networks hadn't seen it before. If, if Darcy and Hutch hadn't worked, <laughs> they never would have said, "Well, let's not make a cop show with two men." They never would have said that. But if Cagney and Lacey had not worked, they may have said, "Well, let's not touch that again let's for twenty again. years." Well, they tried to. They cancelled us, you know, three times. Mm. And uh, um, was there pressure? Yeah, because I was married and had children and was trying to do a job too. So that's being that's the schizophrenia of being an actor, you know. And the whole thing of is she you? No, she's not me. She has a different job. She has a different husband. She has indeed different babies. But um, uh, there was enough. An actor always uses himself, you know, or herself. And so you, so you, uh, uh, this is the instrument. You take your life from that. This is the instrument in, 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 a, in a wash dress because I've run out of clothes. I'm so <laughs> sorry. But, uh, you know, if we're doing Cagney and Lacey, there is not a glamour requirement for me. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it, isn't it true that there was a robbery um, after the series ended? <laughs> Speaking of glamorous clothes. Yes. When we were cancelled, they, they uh, uh, put all the costumes into a fact, fact, some kind of a storage place, and there was a robbery in the storage place, and all of uh, Sharon Glass's costumes were stolen, and none. LAUGHTER <laughs> 
but I didn't want them anyway. There was those awful things with ties, you know. Those the other funnest thing, which is maybe you don't know about, is that because it was the 80s, there were all these shoulder pads. And I don't have any neck, you see. If I had a neck, I could rule the world. But uh, these things just make you look like a footballer, you know, American football, not you guys. And uh, so, these, so we used to take out with customers all of the, the pads. If you take two shoulder pads and you sew them together, you've got a lovely patch. You put those patches together, you've got a patchwork quilt. <laughs> I have the wonder, I have the Cagney and Lacey patchwork quilt. It's, it's just, it's so funny because all of the materials are from the various costumes. That's incredible. <laughs> there, there is some facts that uh, maybe people in the audience don't know, but there is another uh, long running Irish connection uh, to Cagney and Lacey, which uh, you might not be aware of. And that is in the opening titles. Um, I don't know if you remember this. There was a pregnant woman who was the longest-running pregnancy, I think, in 80s television. <laughs> second, you were second to her. <laughs> we had to do it pretty quickly because I was getting pregnant fast, <laughs> and I hadn't told anybody. And they had to, you know, put. It. Anyway, I remember being on the 59th Street Bridge, freezing. We're doing, we're driving to have Mary Beth have her baby, and I had my new baby, and I had the pregnancy pad, and I was feeding Alexandra over the pad. She was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> and it was cold. Anyway, yeah. What? The the actress is called uh, is is an Irish actress. Uh, her name is Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy, mm -hmm. and uh, that was her son Neil. And she is uh, there's a television producer in Ireland who is her nephew, and that is his Cagney and Lacey story. That his aunt is in the opening titles, and ah. <laughs> we've listened to it so many times. <laughs> so we've, I felt it was very important that I put it to you and get a reaction from. Well, I'm, I, don't, I hope she gets some, something from it. <laughs> <laughs> she can walk around well, in other shows. Any show. She got a son. Yeah, yes. That's all you need. That's all that's you need. The, the home life with Harvey, which was one of the loveliest, uh, the loveliest things about Cagney and Lacey. There is an arc in, uh, I can't remember what season it is, but there is this absolutely incredible arc where the Lacey's get a refrigerator. And this is... <laughs> It's strung through so many episodes so. that Ma Mary Beth, <laughs> Mary Beth wants a refrigerator in Californian avocado, and oh. the uh, now you remember. No, <laughs> it's the specifics. But when she finally got it, that scene is so glorious. <laughs> it, it, it is. It must be your third Emmy face. <laughs> That's oh. all I can. <laughs> well, John Carlin. John Carlin was a treat, and he used to say, you know, if I, I thought if, if I'm good and and do my work right all, all week long, then one day a week I'll get to make love to John Carlin, and that'll be, that'll be my dessert. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've stayed in touch with Sharon Glass, like you've, you've always been, you, you know, she's, you became really good friends, yes. and, and you've stayed in touch all the way through, and, the, and last year, or a couple of years ago, you were both actually on the West End together, and it was oh. kind of like Cagney and Lacey fever in the West End, it was absolutely <laughs> incredible, because you were both on the same, on the, both on the Strand. Yes. We were hoping to play together, but she was actually closing just as we were opening a, a master class. And she was doing a play that she had developed called Round-Heeled Woman, which she kind of produced. And, and anyway, I got to see her last performance, and then she left. You know, did she <laughs> hang around to see? No, she was very loyal. She, she comes a lot to my stuff, and I go to her stuff when I, when I can. It's when she came on board, you'd already had two Cagneys. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what was it like to be in a situation where, because you were involved in casting at one point, weren't you? They brought you into some for of the casting. Minute, for a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, 
uh, Loretta was not available because she had a contract to finish up the 12th year of MASH. So she was out of the picture because... And she'd done the movie. Yeah, the network said, it's not, a, it's not a series. It'll never be a series, but we'll make a movie of the week. And we made the movie, and it got these amazing numbers in those days. But then, like here, there was only a few... There were fewer choices. Um, at any rate, we got wonderful numbers, and they said, okay, where's the series? Now we want the series. And uh, our producer said, I don't have uh, Loretta Swit, and I don't have Daly. And what, what do you mean? And they said, well, it, get Daly, and then we'll start from there. So I said I'd sign on again, and they wanted me to help... Uh, with the <laughs> casting of the, of, of the new uh, Cagney. And we were sitting in a room about uh, maybe a sixth, a little, littlest room, and um, they'd bring one actress after another, wonderful actresses, actresses that I admired, you know. And then she would leave after the reading, and I would be, I would be here, I remember she was sitting there. And we'd read, and then she'd leave, and then they'd talk her over. And I just couldn't believe it. It was so... Awful. It was judgmental, and it was you know, it was old gossip, and it was all sorts of stuff. And after about four of them or something, I said, I can't do this, guys. I can't. I'm going to leave with the actress. I'll bring the next one in, but I can't sit here and listen to you um, <laughs> uh, characterize this this woman, uh, all of whom had made some contribution, you know. And I realized after the first week of casting that I had permanently injured my shoulder from trying to protect <laughs> from these people. At uh, any rate, so then we cast Meg, and Meg and I had fun, and then Meg and I sold it, and then the network said violent things about uh, 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 us being lesbians, and so harsh, and all blah, 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 and insisted on another recasting. And I had a long meeting this about, do you care about any of this? Yes. thought of it in a long time. I had a meeting with a guy named Harvey something, who was the head of the network then, at a very fancy restaurant in L.A., and I brought my knitting just in case. And uh, uh, he, I said to him, you know, I'm not trying to save my job. I'm, 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 not, try, I'm not trying to save a... Uh, 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 What's her name? Meg. Meg Megan's, Meg's job. She had the beautiful eyes. I said, you know, but we've now figured out how to do it. We've made six, and the machine is working now. She's relaxed into it. We're all, we, we like each other's stuff. So, you know, I really wish you would, would, would change your mind about recasting. And he said, would you like to be working for me next year, or would you like to be in court? And I said, oh, I'm playing with the big boys. <laughs> yeah, so I had to call Meg and say, give me absolution. Um, and then Sharon came in, and we, it was, a, it was a, a good start because we, well, actually, this is a story you probably already know. Uh, it was her birthday, and all the agents and the managers and the people had left because it was May 31st, which is the a holiday, and I found out it was Sharon's birthday, and I got her number, and I called her up, and I said, look, um, uh, happy birthday, and I have a bottle of champagne and some balloons. Can I come over? And I went over to her little house in the valley, and I, we sat on the floor and drank the bottle of champagne, and, uh, and then she said yes. I talked her into it. I said, come on, these are two great parts for women, which don't come up that often. I, I had been and, you know, the, the victim for 15 years as a professional actress on television. And I said, these are, they're the heroes, and it's really fun, and, and how long could it possibly last? So come on, we'll do the, you know, we'll, we'll do the 13 and get out. But anyway, yeah, she turned out to be the charm. And, and, she, and she was incredible, and it all it kicked off from there, and you made an amazing first season. But then you got the axe again. Uh-huh. And then I won the Emmy, and then they got it back again. And, then, <laughs> and, and there was public outcry. You know, because I didn't mention, 
I just sort of said thank you so much for the opportunity. I didn't say the hell we, I remember, oh, who's the guy from Taxi? Wonderful. He got an Emmy that year too and he sort of cursed out the network. No second series for him. Uh, Judd Hirsch. Hi, Judd. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, my sister Peg says people don't really want to know about what really happens. They just want you to say what you're supposed to say, which is, we had so much fun and it was delightful and she's, and I, don't know if that's true. At any rate, because I get paid to lie for a living <laughs> and have been lying for a living for more than half a century, I just don't lie in life anymore. I don't have to. Excellent. I mean, unless, unless it saves somebody's feelings. But, um, <laughs> so then there was this swathe of public support and uh, I don't know if anyone here, did anyone write a safe Cagney and Lacey letter? <laughs> that, that was states, but uh, it, it came because our producer was getting these boxes of letters from the public, and and he said, uh, and so was I, and so was Sharon at their front door, you know. And he said, just if the if the uh, powers that be at the network don't read their newspapers, maybe they'll read their mail. So just send it over to CBS. And there were lots and lots of letters, and they they backed off again. And sure enough, then there was another four seasons of. Mm -hmm. Of what, we, of what we got. And then we were fired in, in, the, uh, in the Hollywood uh, Reporter. Really? Yeah. Oh, nobody tells That's you. That's classy. They're such, they're such cowards. <laughs> oh, yeah, we were, we, were, we were fired in the paper. So you, so you read it in the paper that it mm -hmm. wasn't coming back? Yeah. Wow. It's That's gratitude glamour. for you. <laughs> the reason that I went into this business is because of the glamour and the dignity. <laughs> Keep that in mind. <laughs> One of the things that's happening at the moment is they've made a pilot. They, they, they've, made, they've, they've made a pilot to remake it, um, oh, apparently, uh, according no, to no. the internet. There were, there, yeah, uh, it didn't go. It didn't go, okay. No, it didn't go. Yeah. okay. Actually, I, I read it. It was they made every mistake. They took out the difference, the economic difference between the two women. They took out the uh, uh, levels of violence between the two women. They t yeah, they, they, they just um, betrayed all of what was sort of the mission statement of what we were doing. So. Because it was, it was social work as well. Because if we, if we think back to the 80s, um, we, we mentioned earlier one of the two parts that you did, um, which was Lacey's breast cancer, mm -hmm. the, the whole arc of that story. Um, that all, that happened in the 80s. So before, before the internet, before get, you could just Google your yeah, symptoms. They, they, um, and the treatment that Lacey got in the series was a treatment, it was a new treatment that they were trying to make women aware of, yes. the lumpectomy. Yes. And two weeks after it aired on Cagney and Lacey, it was in the, on the cover of the New England Journal of Medicine. Was it? Yes, according to Barney Rosenzweig. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so what was it like to be a part of that, to, to, for it to be playing a hero and then suddenly this is what we're going to do to the hero? It's, it's work, okay? And we were playing out this story of breast cancer and then there was going to be the Christmas break and I had a director on the thing that I loved uh, who was, and I said, can we play out the breast cancer part of this before I get to go to Jamaica and have holiday with my family because <laughs> I don't want to have to carry this with me. You know, so we, so we, you know, we sort of managed to do the work that way, which was a day, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. The, the names are going on me, kids. Um, but yeah, you try. Um, I didn't realize how useful it was uh, because it, uh, until, until afterwards when people would come and say, my mother got a second opinion because of your show. You know? So I didn't understand it as a, as a, a useful thing. The, I suppose before we throw it open to the uh, 
to the masses. <laughs> um, the, the, the final question, is, the legacy of Cagney and Lacey, obviously when you're making a series, uh, at the time, you don't think of it in terms of legacy, but now 30 years later, we're, we're, it's a Thursday afternoon and you're on the other side of the world, world still talking about it. What do you think the legacy is? I came up in an acting family, which means I knew a lot about acting, actors being real, like Judith Anderson throwing up on the couch because she drank too much, you know, uh, uh, that, that it was actually work and stuff. Um, uh, so my old dad, who did a lot of um, early television, live television, used to say, television has all the importance of a fart in the desert. <laughs> and with that kind of upbringing, you don't get really full of yourself about the importance and the legacy, words like legacy and icon and role model, it's swell. And I'm awfully glad if anybody had a good time and got something out of it. But I, I, don't, I don't speak to the subject of, of uh, television legacy. It's, you know, you know that opening of the one about the newspaper, Ed Asner's thing, where there's the headline in the newspaper and it gets thrown on the lawn and then it gets rained on and then somebody, at the end of the, of the credits, he shoves it under the birdcage. You know, for, <laughs> um, yeah, you sh I'm careful about things that I think are lasting and things that I think are great. Very short list. <laughs> well, <But> thanks. <laughs> I just never know how to answer that because it's up to other people to, to analyze uh, the work. It must have been, for your mom, because your mom was a, an actress, mm -hmm. um, it must have been great for her to see you involved in something that changed television for women so much. What was her, did you ever talk to her about Cagney and Lacey? She was a wonderful actress. She gave it up when there was a kid number three uh, at uh, Summerstock. Um, and she also was a great uh, critic and she taught you stuff. My brother Tim was an actor. Uh, used to say that you know if you're an actor's kid and you're in the third grade play playing the fourth flower from the left and the other parents come back with roses and, and hugs and your parents come back with three pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a different experience. But by the time, by the, by the time I uh, was, uh, was doing Cagney and Lacey and I was, you know, uh, mother had just decided to do um, uh, t t total approval. She loved everything. Oh, wonderful. She loved, and so that was very nice. That because is very she was nice. she was no longer in the business of correcting me, which is uh, <laughs> if, if you can live with your mom and she stops correcting you, you've led a good life. <laughs> and if you can do that to your children, you've led an even better life. They're, they're not just there to be corrected, they're there to be uh, enjoyed, I think. <laughs> okay, uh, does anyone have a, a question? Ma'am. Oh, yeah. You only look 20, God. <laughs> the thing that I, um, I love the writing of it, and I absolutely love your playing and Sharon Glass. But the thing I love about it is your real friendship, that it wasn't always easy. Nope. And I, I just thought that was so reflective of life. And me and my friends would say that, you know, are you like, are you a bit like. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I found really interesting watching it in different times of my life is how relevant some of the stuff still is. And I think I wanted to ask you, there was an episode where homeless people were living in a hotel, mm -hmm. and that's still very re relevant in Ireland. And I suppose, did you think making it back then, the topics would still be so relevant now? <sighs> Human beings change very, very slowly. 
and it's disappointing. Human beings one-to-one -one are great. Bunches of them are suspect, and I'm not really fond of them uh, because they, they, they're so stupid. They don't learn anything. Um, I don't, and again, I don't know that television changes anything. If it does show you something that reminds you of something that's true or that you recognize it's good, but I don't think it changes anything, really. Um, sorry. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. Oh yes, Mary Glynn. Nice to see you again. Thank <laughs> you. Um, you said jokingly that um, you joined, you got involved in TV for the glamour and the dignity. Yes. Okay, so let's say that wasn't the case. Then why did you go into that arena? For the opportunity <clears throat> to, to have a, a a job that's about empathy and um, words. Although the movies is about pictures, which is why I've never been a big deal in the movies. Uh, the television is just small movies. Television is frozen time, and so is film. You, you, when, when I look at it, I remember the kind of day we were having. Who was fighting with who, and whether the lunch was any good. You know, uh, uh, um, <laughs> so frozen time is different than live time. And for the actor, or this me actor, my kind of actor, when I'm in the same room with the people I'm telling the story to, it's more fun. And you get to tell the story from beginning to end. You don't tell it in bits, you know, and try and figure out where those bits will fit. Um, it's just, it's a different, mostly acting is acting, uh, and it's the same in any medium except how you use your energy. In, in uh, the movies or in television, you use your energy in, in, in tiny segments. And you wait around for 26 minutes while they set up the shot to do 30 seconds of film. Um, in, in the theater, you get to practice the story, you get to know it from beginning to end, and then the time it takes to play the play from getting ready at 7.30 to 11.30, your, your energy is being used in a continuous stream. So it's just, it's different. <laughs> yeah, frozen time. Like frozen food, it's just about the <laughs> uh, that, that gentleman there? Uh, well, he's very efficient. He wasn't directing. He had, he had kicked some guy upstairs. He's very paternalistic, so his, in his company. Uh, so he wasn't directing, but if his cheek muscle twitched, we didn't set up. You know? <laughs> but he never yelled, um, except that we had a, a closing scene on the island where she's shot to death, and, and then he gets the mayor, and they blow up the tower and all that stuff, and they go have a big, long shot like this with a, with a helicopter. And when we looked at the dailies, which he allowed the company to do, the Zero Dead Days, we'd, we'd look at the film from before and, uh, and have drinks and food. And um, it, when, they bat, when they pulled away from the island, the fog came in and obliterated the shot. And uh, everybody was saying to Jackie Green, the cinematographer and stuff, was saying, it's fine, it's good, you know, it's all right. And, and Eastwood stood up to his full six foot four hike and he said, fellas, don't go cheap on me now. We're going back, we're rebuilding the tower, we're doing the whole thing over again. <laughs> this is the exit, this is an important thing, we can't, you cannot, you know. The only thing more important than an entrance is an exit. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we redid the whole thing and I was grateful to him as a boss for that because he, yeah. Don't go cheap on me, I love that. <laughs> um, anyone else have a question? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, you just, you're saying you're kind of, I think you're kind of crafty and we're talking about making quilts and knitting and stuff like that. I just wonder, are you still kind of into knitting and did you 
that the Daily Can had an Arab pattern theory going? No, I did not. And I, I can't knit anymore because my hands blow up like baseball mitts. Uh, they're just, but uh, yeah, we're all, we're all pretty, pretty uh, crafty in the family. And we did a big project on judging Amy because um, um, there was, we, made, we made very soft caps for ladies who had cancer with no seams on them so that it wouldn't be irritating. We started with baby caps and then we, then we made hundreds of them. Uh, me, my sister Peg, uh, Geordie Sheffer, my hairdresser, a lot of the ladies. And, and, and the men were fascinated. How do you do that? What is it? Because it's kind of, it's kind of a distaff thing that seems like very mysterious to them. Uh, one, thing, one thing I didn't mention actually was the re... re Will you give me the pattern? <laughs> Good. I'll, I'll take it to Glynis. She'll do it. One thing I didn't uh, didn't ask you about was the reunions of Cagney, the movies of Cagney and Lacey. Have people seen them? Y uh, yeah, yes, well, they're they, there. They were buried pretty much because because we were not the idea of a man named Les Moonves, who used to run the thing and who got came a cropper in the Me Too movement just recently. Um, a lot of times when the bosses come in to to take over a network, what they want to do is is sweep away. Uh, the previous ideas, the ideas all have to be theirs. This is reflected very painfully at uh, the current resident of the People's House in Washington, D.C. <laughs> at any rate, uh, <laughs> don't get me started. We'll never see the movie. The <laughs> only tie that works with this is red, and I refuse to wear it because I'm not going to look like the man. <laughs> um, but anyway, Mr. Moonves couldn't get rid of us. He, 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 you know, and then when the, uh, when the movies of the week came out, <clears throat> uh, we were hoping to do like one a year which was kind of the fashion then. And uh, James, Jimmy, mm, he did that series. Anyway, they promised us we were getting a fair deal. Um, and uh, so we made the first one. And, and, and um, then we discovered that Jim, Jimmy Gardner, James Gardner, yeah, James Gardner's film had 40% more advertising on television before his, his thing came on, his, his remake came on. They had a, about a third more budget, and he was allowed to go around the country and advertise it. They wouldn't pay for me and Sharon to advertise it. We had that unfair, that uneven uh, playing field, even then. I mean, we're talking about yeah, thoughts. Yeah, years after you'd made the mark. <clears throat> and, um, and so we were one half of a percentage point in the ratings under which prevented us from being number one. Jimmy Gardner was number one for the year of those things, and we came squeaking into second place with 0 .05 of a, it's, it's a, it's a lousy game. It's a lousy business, and it's a great art. So, uh, you know, what did I go, I, I went in for the art part, but not the business part. <laughs> the business part is the glamour and the dignity. So you have to dress up like a prize horse every year and go in, into a horse race called the Emmys or the, you know. <laughs> And it's divisive, and it's not really, I mean, you could maybe have an acting contest if everybody played Hamlet. And you could say, well, I like this one better. You know, then, then it would be a contest. To put up, you know, Cagney Lacey against whatever. Uh, Golden Rider. Girls, well, <laughs> you know, um, it doesn't mean anything, really. Another question? Sir. Um, your father was a very celebrated actor. Um, he made most of his, his living in television and then on the stage when he could. Uh, he had, a, he had a, 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 a solid career. He had a great, great reputation. But I do remember when he was up for the Emmy for doing something with Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine uh, and a Hallmark Hall of Fame. Uh, and, and a, anyway, he was up for the Emmy. And um, 
he and my mama had split up, and so he took my sister Glynis to the, to the uh, evening, and um, he won. And he got up, and my, <laughs> my sister Glynn grabbed him by the arm and said, Dad, don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my dad sort of, sort of got up and said, thank you, and ran from the stage, <laughs> threatened by my 14-year-old sister. <laughs> he, he, liked, he loved the work. Um, he got disappointed in the work when he was doing a kind of a dumb TV series where he had not much to do. But then he went back on the stage. Uh, he, he called me up from somewhere, Atlanta, Georgia. He was doing Butley. If anybody was but an English teacher had some fame in the movies. And he was drunk as the Lord. And um, he called him and said, Oh, Tino, Tino, you don't get bravos on TV. <laughs> So he re-upped and did theater for the balance of his life and enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> we've, we've time just for uh, just one last question. There she is. Thank you. um, you've alluded to this in some of the answers that you've given, but um, your reflection on Me Too moves and from this perspective, having come through an extraordinary career. Powerful men have taken advantage of unpowerful boys and girls since time immemorial. There's no news there, the casting couch and all that stuff. I had the advantage of, of having a, a dad in the business and a husband in the business, so I wasn't bothered very much. I used to think it was because I was so unattractive and that there was something wrong with me, that I didn't get you know, chased around the couch. And I don't mean to take, do this lightly, but I did know that, that uh, um, uh, trading sex for career was, was not a good idea. Um, it, was a, it was one of the rules you didn't break. And I know that there are a lot of young people who are, who are uh, ambitious and frantic to get into a, an overstocked uh, uh, business where there's always more actors than there are parts. Um, and I'm sad for girls that get taken advantage of, but I also think that if you're 15, you know better than to go up to the hotel room with somebody who's older than your grandpa, and um, you, ha you have to find your way out of it. I'm not talking, I mean, to be, to be raped, to be violated violently, to be threatened, to be told you'll never work again, all of that is power, is a power play. It has very little to do with sex. It has to do with, um, uh, I don't know why all these great big guys, uh, you know, need to rush onto people in elevators. It's like so stupid. Um, but in terms of, of women, I hope that one thing that the Me Too movement does is inform women to be, to be more true to themselves, to not, to not sell themselves cheap, and to not betray something for a, for a, a, a worthless uh, outcome. Because, you know, they'll mess with you and they'll put you in a movie. Try next year. Try a season after that. It doesn't work. Well, it's been absolutely... Fantastic to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for uh, all the joy that you've given us. Um, and there's nothing left to do but to screen the okay. two episodes you didn't win the Emmy for. <laughs> and if you want to go back and have a conversation with okay. someone quite harshly. If, if I start making odd noises and everything, <laughs> just remove me for the theatre. Thank you for doing your homework. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. <laughs>
Now, a quick correction and apology. The lady that is in the opening credits of Cagney and Lacey is not called Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy. Her name is Josephine O'Shaughnessy, and that is my bad. So I gave her a quick call, firstly to apologise, but also to find out how it came about. I took it, I was a bit flippant about it. I, I took it with a grain of salt because Manhattan was very exciting in those days when I lived there. And I guess the person that was more excited when I came home and told my niece was visiting from England at the time and she was staying with me. And when I told her, like, she made a big deal about it and um, she wanted to know if I saw anyone famous and Unfortunately, my response was no, just two women. I guess they weren't famous at that time. So mostly my family in England were the ones that sort of kept the excitement going. And um, so, so you weren't a movie extra. You were just walking along one day and they, they asked you to get into a scene? Oh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't a movie extra. It was just on, on the streets. Did anyone recognise you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did. People did recognise me then and when, it, when it came out and started telling me about it. And I guess I, I, I haven't watched the show, but I'm going to pull it up on... I see it's on Amazon Prime now, so I think I'll start watching it because I didn't watch TV back then. But I did see the picture of me, so I, I know it's definitely me. Well, it was lovely to talk to you, Anna. I really hope you enjoy your um, your coffee this morning. <laughs> and you should definitely oh, tell them you. you're the lady in Cagney and Lacey. I will. I'll, I'll tell them what's delaying me. <laughs> <laughs> that was Josephine O'Shaughnessy, the most famous pregnant woman in 80s television. Thanks to everyone that made this episode happen. To Will at the Galway Film Flat, John V. Fahey, everyone at Lisa Richards, Special thanks to Kieran Gallagher and Josephine O'Shaughnessy, the staff at the Town Hall Theatre in Galway, and thanks to my parents for coming down uh, to watch the show and for finally allowing me to watch Cagney and Lacey. And of course, of course, big thank you to Time Daily. There'll be a new episode soon. I don't know if it'll be as amazing as this one. It's probably unlikely, but it'll be out soon. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Free Kids Workshops are back in stores at The Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month, from 9am to 12pm, bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com kids. For 25 years, The Home Depot has been building confident, future doers with its Free Kids Workshops. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Lost by last, U.S. only.